Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Uh, we are finishing up our series on Advent. If you've never done Advent or been a part of it or really familiar with it, you light a candle each week, the four weeks coming until Jesus is born, and you celebrate different components and aspects of how Jesus comes and what his roles are uh, for us. And so the last few weeks, we've been studying those. Um, there's the idea of hope and that we have hope in Jesus, not only for what he did, but what he will do. And uh, that was fulfilled through his idea that he's this great prophet, that, we, he, he, that God uh, did what he said he would do through Jesus. And then the next week, we talked about uh, peace and how Jesus is the great sacrifice that allows us to be at peace and shalom with God himself and in relationship with him. And then last week, we talked about joy or happiness or blessedness and how all of those components together allows us to be fulfilled with joy and happiness under Jesus as the great king. And so today is kind of the culmination of all those. And uh, if you were doing this at home, sometimes there's a fifth candle. It's a white candle. It's the Jesus candle. And you would light that on Christmas Day as the symbol of him kind of fulfilling all four here. Uh, we don't have that because you're going to be at your house tomorrow. So uh, hopefully you have something maybe you could light as just a reminder of that. But as we culminate everything together today, we're going to talk about love and the idea of love. And Jesus really just bringing that all together through uh, God's crazy idea to become human and to live among us. So if you have your Bibles, love for you to turn to Isaiah 9. We're going to kind of be bouncing around, so uh, if you can, we can start there. Um, but what I want to do today is I just want to focus on a couple things. Uh, the first thing is I want to focus on the idea that Jesus was the waited Messiah for hundreds of years for the Israelite people. We have a hard time understanding that because we kind of know the end of the story, like Jesus came and died and resurrected and we're going to be saved through Jesus. Great. And we celebrate that today. But we didn't have this long anticipating and waiting and hungering and even having seasons of disbelief of, is this really going to happen? Is God really going to do what he says he's going to do? And so I want us to try to paint a little bit of a picture of what that would feel like for us. Uh, and then I want to talk about what does love actually mean in light of Jesus coming and uh, living a life among us and eventually dying for our sins uh, on the cross. So Isaiah 9, if you're there, Isaiah 9, um, Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and to give you just a little bit of history, Isaiah is, is the mouthpiece of God telling the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the chosen nation of God, uh, a lot of things either they're doing wrong or what God's going to do. And in Isaiah 9, we get this, what we call a prophecy of what God will do through his people and we know this to be uh, him talking about Jesus. So in Isaiah 9, verse 6, it starts like this. And I read this in the first week of Advent, so it might sound familiar. It says, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and he shoulders responsibility. And he's called extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His dominion will be vast. He will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore, the Lord's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. Now imagine, I mean, you're hearing that as Jewish people, you're like, that sounds really great. All this stuff sounds a little far-fetched. Uh, but the Jewish people, you're excited. You know, this great King David had, uh, was a man after God's own heart, and God was going to continue to use his lineage to bring this, this Messiah, this God with us. And they didn't have any idea what it would look like, but they assumed it would be like any other king or any other person of significant value, which means 
They're probably in a really wealthy family, a spectacular birth in a palace, right? And if you've already known a little bit of the Christmas story, you know that's not the case at all. Um, but this anticipation is really rich for them. And there are times when the anticipation feels very real and very near, and there are times when it feels very far from that. I think about, um, you know, us in our, in our culture of waiting. The longest we wait for things is, if it's Amazon, typically one-day shipping, right? Like, if I got to wait longer, like, they'll be like, you can save like a dollar or two if you wait three days. And I'm like, why would I wait three days? I can have it here today or tonight. We don't do it, right? Why would we do that? Because we, we are not used to waiting anymore. Everything is just like this quick, and we want it now. Uh, I, it's funny, I remember my daughter, she loves Halloween, mainly for the candy. And uh, like a week after Halloween, she's like, hey, let's do Halloween again. And I was like, you can't do Halloween every week uh, because you would have no teeth. Um, but, but I said, we do it once a year. You got to wait till next year. And she's like, well, that's dumb. Why can't we just do Halloween now? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know why. We could if you really wanted to. I don't know why Halloween's the end of October. It's freezing in half of the U.S. Let's just move it to October 1st. Can everybody agree? Hands raised. It's a great idea. Thank you. It's, there's no reason why it's the 31st. Anyways, Halloween, right? You're anticipating. You're waiting. And as kids, nothing is more exciting if you remember waiting for Christmas Day and, and sitting down and seeing all these gifts in front of you and then reading the Christmas story. No, you're like, this is torture. Just let me open the gifts, right? Like, I remember we used to do it. We did it for a little while. My dad tried his best. A few years, we'd read the story, and then we'd get to open gifts. And after a while, it just, it was, it was just, it didn't happen. We'd be up at like 6.30 a.m. waking them up. Like, we're going to open presents if you're not here in 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> but that's the anticipation, this excitement and this wait. And we get excited about Christmas, and there's definitely a lot of kind of secular norms in Christmas that we participate in. That's fine. But the reality of, of the Jewish people awaiting a Messiah to them was a massive anticipation because their several hundred years from this prophetic word to the fulfillment of it was full of tons of turmoil, tons of hardship, and tons of moments that felt like there was no hope in what God, would, would God actually do what he said he was going to do? And this leaves us with the last prophet in the Old Testament. So if you want to, you can turn to the end of the Old Testament and a prophet named Malachi, if you've ever read him. Uh, he's the last prophet in the time period that we have of the Old Testament. And this is how Malachi closes. This is how the Old Testament closes. It says in verse 5, chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. End story. Pretty brutal, right? Like, what a, what a cliffhanger. And, and then what we have is what we call the silent period, 400 years of silence. 400 years of God not really talking to his people. There's, there's moments uh, where they see the people, the Jewish people try to fix what they had done wrong or make it better or alleviate some sort of uh, difficulties, but God is pretty much silent for 400 years. And they have to sit in the tension of this until Jesus comes in the Gospels. Uh, if you're a history buff, in the span of that 400 years, when Malachi was written, they were, he was prophesying during the Medo-Persian Empire. So the Persian Empire had had control of the area where the Israelites, around where they would have been. And then eventually the Greeks took it over. <clears throat> the Greeks then influenced a massive amount of culture. You know the Greeks, all about culture. They, they introduce a massive amount of culture. The Jewish people then start to not even follow the laws of Yahweh. There's one true God. They start to just live like Greeks, and it becomes chaos. Eventually then, in about 128 B.C., uh, a guy named Judah the Hammer, what a name, right? <clears throat> uh, definitely, he was definitely not a violent guy, uh, <clears throat> came, and uh, the Jewish people basically overthrew the Greeks, and they restored the temple for proper temple worship. But if you guess you're right, they still don't worship Yahweh. They don't follow the laws. They just did it more out of like a kind of a, a zealous spirit. 
And then you got another 60 years go by, 63 BC, Rome, who is like a superpower at this point, takes over and subjugates, uh, which means they puppet basically Jerusalem and all of the Jewish people. And so then, uh, you know, about 65 years go by, that's when Jesus is born. And you're just sitting in this culture as a Jewish person, knowing all the stories from ancestor to ancestor. I mean, this is a very strong, uh, like, it was a very strong culture of stories. That was just how you shared history. We didn't have Wikipedia or what Wikipedia is now today. Ten years ago, it was the sketchy site. Now we seem to just, it's okay, it's valid, I guess. But, uh, but they didn't have that. So the stories of like, hey, our entire ancestors lived through uh, periods of exile, being taken away, the temple being destroyed, us having to deal with being in a culture that didn't value Yahweh or his laws, right? All of this tension for, for, for centuries and for generations and generations. And they have to sit in the hope of these prophecies that this will one day come true. And what's crazy about their hope was their hope was, yes, we will become free, but their hope was actually, it was skewed in the wrong direction. Their hope was, this Messiah will come, and just like maybe Judah the Hammer, he will come in with some sort of weapon, and he will overthrow Rome, right? He will take over the superpower that is Rome through military destruction. And, and God just has a completely different plan. I mean, how often in our lives do we feel like we have a plan, and it, it doesn't go well. And what do we do? We blame God, right? We're like, well, God, come on. My plan was pretty good. Why did you not throw me, throw me a bone here and just make this work out? And, and then what happens is you're either angry at God or you feel like he's not present. Or you're like, I just need to do more. If I do all these right things, then I'll get blessed and then I'll be able to do these things or right? whatever it is. And I mean, the Jewish people know different. In fact, Malachi, when Malachi was prophesying that, not only was it at a point where the Jewish people were completely disabandoning uh, the laws, they were also arguing with God, saying that because of the destruction, he was unjust. So not only were they saying, we don't like your laws and we don't want to follow them, then they were also like, we don't even like you and trust you, and you're not a just God if you're allowing this to happen. So the Jewish people are very aware of the things that we're aware of in the world today, where we see these things and these evils happen, and we have a hard time reconciling where is God in the midst of all of this. And on Christmas Day... God has a plan, and it is a plan that none of us would have drawn up or chosen if we would have had it our way. That's, I think, very true. And so what is this plan? Um, I want to start before the Christmas night. I want to start with Mary. So hundreds of years go by, and the Jewish people are still memorizing and reading these scrolls of prophecies in, in, the, in the tabernacle and uh, the uh, synagogues, and they're reminding themselves of this hope. And Mary... The angel comes to Mary and is basically like, hey, Mary, you're going to birth Jesus. She's like, whoa. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, whoa. That's crazy. <laughs> I really should write a commentary on that. Um, <clears throat> but she sings this song, and we read this song, and we're like, okay, cool, Mary. But you don't realize that she doesn't know what's going to happen yet. She doesn't have the end of the story. This is massive news. Hundreds of years, the entire Israelite people are on your shoulders as a humble woman teenager. I mean, just come on, add up, add up here. Like, this is, wow, not a good choice. Like, like God sent the angels to the wrong person, right? Uh, and she sings this song, and it says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior, because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's lifted up those of lowly position. He has helped, uh, filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, remembering over several hundred years that God has not given up on his people as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. 
And so this, is, this song is basically just her way of being like, I cannot believe that God chose me. Just an like, probably below average person economically. A woman, a teenager, like why would this be the story? Why was it not some queen in a palace, right? Why did God not just come as a toddler or a teenager or as an adult? Why would it have to go through this just humble, meek uh, process? And those of you who have been in, the, in a birthing room or given birth, you know there's, there's a lot of just like, vulnerability to it, and, and to engage this, the, the God of the universe into that process seems like a wild idea. And then if we add to the story, you know, I already gave you the really great story here with Hobby Lobby, but um, the story of just Jesus' birth, that Mary and Joseph are then, they're required to go back to his hometown, most likely because uh, Rome wanted to count their taxes, and they count taxes by census. They don't have an IRS um, necessarily, so they're just, you go home and they count everyone, and then they can tax everyone. And so you had to go home. So they go home to this small town of a few hundred people, no Motel 6 to be found, and, uh, and they're staying with some relatives most likely, and most houses at this point were a two-story, kind of all one giant room, like a loft in a lower level. The lower level was all the animals, the loft where the family would stay. And there's already tons of people there because everyone's got to be there for the census. They got no room. They stay in the lower level with all the animals, right? We know the story, and we can argue over whether it's a stable or a cave or whatever, right? Uh, we're all three. But... They're, they're in this lower level filled with animals. They're there for a few days, and, and man, they got, she's got to give birth, right? And all of a sudden, uh, they're giving birth in this just, like, super average place. Super average. Some people focus on the fact that they're like, oh, my gosh, she's having a baby with, like, animals around. Imagine how unsanitary that is. Yes, but that was not that uncommon at this time. I mean, I'm sure you would choose not to have, you know, you know a longhorn, you know, um, cow in your, in your uh, birthing room. But... You weren't, she wasn't the first one to have to do this, right? It wasn't that uncommon. Um, and, and she does. And what, what God appears to do is create, really, honestly, the most boring story. He really does. Like, there's no, he, 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 he puts them into a normal house in a small town, of, really of nothing. There's a lot of prophetic words about Bethlehem. But this small town in this house cramped with people and animals. And she gives birth. And then, and then he calls the lowest level and most boring people. He calls the shepherds who are in the fields uh, nearby, which are also like the lowest class, who care, like you're not inviting shepherds to your, your party. Uh, they can barely even read, you know. So these guys, uh, but the angels appear to them, and they give them the first opportunity to know that, hey, God is doing something for your people, and he is bringing great news and good joy. And that's what it says in Luke 2.10, uh, if you want to turn there. Uh, I'm just going to be there for a second. But he says, this is the good news. That brings great joy, or kara is the Greek. We talked about this last week, that joy has lots of different meanings. Kara to all people. And what they're saying is a very similar saying. Luke is pretty brilliant when he does this. To what would have been said whenever the Greeks or the Romans or whoever uh, would have taken over or won a military victory. So if you were in a small town, a horse rider comes in. Hey, we're on battle. Just so you know, like, you might get killed. Like, they, you know, they're a small town. You should get ready. And then eventually later they have a rider come in that's like, Run away, or we won, right? That's kind of how it goes. There's no Twitter. You can't just tweet out like, man, we destroyed these people. Hooray, right? And so the rider has to come in, and they typically would shout something to that extent, like, good news, we've won. And then typically at the end, they would, they would tag on, you know, praise the king of whoever, right? Octavian, the king of the Lord of Lords, right? Like, that's what they would say. And so Luke does the exact same kind of writing with the angels who are talking to the shepherds. Hey, you're, you, the king is here. Like, good news to all of you. 
It's great joy. And to the shepherds, they're thinking all of you, meaning the Jewish people who have been waiting this God with us, this Messiah, this one to come and free us. And God wastes it on these mere shepherd people who are like, let's go hang out. Let's go see this. And so they come to the party. And they're, they're uh, experiencing just this, this awe and reverence in this moment that they're thinking, man, this kid's going to take over Rome. This is crazy. You know, it's unbelievable. And it's not the story that we would write. If you had the opportunity to, to write this story, you would not write it this way. You'd create a lot more drama. You'd create a lot better of a place to have a baby or a lot higher lineage or, you know, all these things. It's such a mediocre story at best. And I'm not saying that to be offensive. I'm saying that because it's purposeful. There's a reason why God is moving through the mundane and through the humble because that is the God who desires most to be with those types of people, that he runs to the shepherds, uh, and that later we'll see the, the um, wise men come. Um, but in, in the midst of that, I want, I want to paint this picture for us at an even deeper level. Uh, Mary and Joseph, poor family, have a baby in this not great place, in very humble means. And then it gets even more humble. Most people don't read on, uh, but in, in this culture, you would wait basically seven to eight days, and then you would circumcise if it was a male, and you would name them. So they named Jesus about a week later. And uh, from that, you have about then 33 more days, 40 days total of a ritual purification that must be done by the mother because she's unclean because of blood and things like that. And so they have to go through that, and then they have to go to Jerusalem to perform a sacrifice to honor God and thank him and to give over their firstborn to God. Uh, this used to be in the Old Testament, you know, you'd typically give them over potentially the service of, of a priest or something like that. Um, but it was more so just a holistic reminder of everything we own is God's. Every first thing that I get, I remind myself it's actually God's, not mine. And so they're doing this process like good rule-following Jews. But if you notice, there's a little detail in there that they sacrifice two birds. In this culture, when you would do this, if you had the money, you would sacrifice a lamb because that was just what was required of the sacrifice. If you did not have the means, then there was a law that was written that you could sacrifice two birds. And so Mary and Joseph are so poor, they can't even afford the true sacrifice that belongs to God who gave them what we call the lamb, right, uh, to us, and they sacrifice two birds. And this is part of the reason why I said the wise men weren't there, because if the wise men would have dropped that college fund on baby Jesus' manger, piles of gold, they would have plenty of money to buy a lamb, and they didn't. So arguably, they were there later. That's fine. You can fight me after service. But uh, if you ever have an activity scene at your house, I will pick up the wise men, and I will put them somewhere else. So just know that. Don't invite me over for Christmas. I'm a good time, I promise. Um, but the, 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 this story, though, of the wise men is this symbolic understanding of the world truly will receive the beauty and the benefits and the love of Jesus. And so these wise men come, and they get there, however old Jesus is, and they're just on their knees, like, this could be it. And we don't see a lot of, um, like, further movement from them. They leave. They go back a different way. We don't, like, hear that they spread the gospel to all the other nations. You don't necessarily hear that. It's not necessarily the point. The point is that God's love is now made accessible for all people, that this Savior of the Jewish people is also the Savior of the world. And that's this beautiful story that we see. And it's, it's prophesied in Luke 2 by a man named Simeon when Mary and Joseph are at the temple. They're doing all the sacrificing and the ritual purification uh, laws and all that. A guy had been there for a long time that the Holy Spirit basically said, you're not going to die until you see Jesus. And in verse 27, uh, it says, So Simeon, directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Now according to your words, sovereign Lord, permit your servant 
to depart in peace. This is a weird way of saying, I've seen him now, God, I can die. That's what he's saying, is this is the one. And he says this little, like, little uh, song. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. And so what this is just reminding us is God's love is for everyone, Jew or Gentile. Gentile is just not a Jew, if you're wondering, so you're most likely a Gentile. But God's love is extending to all these people on this day, and he draws in people to show that, the shepherds, the lowest of the low. He, uh, King Herod had an opportunity to go, and he didn't, obviously. I wonder why. Uh, and then the, the Gentiles, that these wise men come from the east, and these spiritual seekers are still able to find love through Jesus and salvation. And so this is the start of, of love for us. You know, Love in the Old Testament uh, in God's was, was the law showing him the heart and the purpose and the reality of holiness and the beauty of God in, in who he was and who he wanted his people to be. And that had a really bad trajectory for the people of Israel. They were not good. They would curse God. They would run off into the things of the world. They would uh, refuse his laws. They would argue with God, all these things, right? And God finally sets it straight to show them how deep his love is, not just through law, but through a fulfilling of the law, through a human that, that is God. And, you know, I, I think that now at this point we know the story. Okay, Christmas Day, hooray, Jesus comes, right? And we get excited about that. But thinking about the anticipation that the Jewish people had to endure, thinking about my daughter waiting a whole other year for Halloween, right? There's this joy and hope and excitement, but there's also times of frustration, and there's times of anger, and there's times of, man, is this really going to happen? And for us who have been able to, to know the Christmas story, to celebrate it, some of us you know, believe in it, we still are waiting, believe it or not. What are we waiting for? The word Advent Aventus Latin means coming. We are waiting. We are excited for God that has come, Jesus, in the form of man and has saved us of our sins, but we are still waiting for the second coming of Jesus to make all things right, to restore the hardship, the, the evil, the malevolence in the world, the way the world is not the way that we want it, that we don't have an answer for, in something that is Jesus doing this. And this is what I think that we have to practice, practice by like actually putting effort into it, of, of just sitting in the hope of what is to come. The frustration that some of you may feel on Christmas Day for whatever reason, loss or grief, or you didn't get the present you want, or you're just fighting with your spouse, because what better day to fight than Christmas, right? Or you're just, you're just like feeling uneasy, you know, or whatever it is, right? That is, the, that is a very real experience that God is aware of. And on Christmas, we celebrate what he has done, but what he is going to do as well. And so weirdly enough, Christmas is a time of celebration, but it's, all, it's not done yet. It's a time of hope for what is to come, that the sadness, that the grieving, that the the evil in the world, something will be done about it. And whether you're a Christian or not, it's not very hard to argue there's evil in the world. Now, how the evil got there, that's another fun, long philosophical question. But what is God going to do about it? And he's got a very specific plan. And so what I want to do is I want to focus, just as we close here, on what God has done through his son for us now. Because we have not yet to experience this fullness of what God intends for the world. That's what we're hoping for and waiting for and yearning for. But we have a moment here now that we get a chance to experience some of this love. And so uh, 1 John 4, I'm going to close out here. One of the greatest passages on the love of God. Uh, it's just beautiful. It says this in verse 7. And this is partly what uh, Chelsea read for our Advent. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
By this, the love of God is revealed in us, that God has sent his Son and only Son into the world so that we may live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, we may think, like, sometimes you read this and you're like, so what, no one else is capable of love? You don't love God? You're not capable of love. You know, you say, I have great parents. They're not Christians. I would say they've expressed love, and I'm not here to say, no, they're not loving at all. But there is a certain level of love that is only able to be accessed through a supernatural belief and power. Because I don't know about you, but to lay your life down for someone, that's really hard, right? The Bible says, what greater love than that, right? To lay your life down for your brother or your sister, right? For sure, what parent wouldn't lay their life down for their kids, what parent, though, would lay their life down for some random person who hates them? What, what person would be willing to be subjected to torture and pain and agony right, for the love of some random person who may or may not even be grateful for it? It reminds me of a story that was, uh, occurred during the Soviet Union um, when the Soviet Union was taking people who were disagreeing with what they were doing and throwing them into basically like a concentration camp, um, internment camp. And, uh, and, you know, they were pretty rough. Uh, not to compare them with the Nazi regime and all that, but pretty similar in terms of severity. You wouldn't typically come out of those. And they were a lot of times labor, you labor intensive. Well, you get to the point where if you were in there a long time and you were a certain age, you know, then you weren't of use and, uh, and they would just get rid of you. And there was a guy who had been there for a long time who had just participated in, in you know, surviving, but he was an older man. And at, at one point, basically, some people escaped the, the prison compound. And when they escaped, they couldn't find them, and so they brought everyone into this main area, and they said, hey, you know, I, I can't remember the exact number. It was like, five people escape, five of you have to die because this is how it works, you know, is this idea of scaring them and not escaping, knowing they'd, have, they'd kill their brothers if they did it. And, uh, and so, you know, they, they, they select a few, pe- a few guys because nobody obviously wants to offer, right? And, uh, and the, you know, this guy, this last guy is like pleading, like, no, I have a family, you know, I, I don't want to die, I'm so young. And, and so this older guy steps up, and he says, I'll take your place. And, and, you know, we read about stories like this. These, these kind of stories happen in the world in different ways, where you're just offering yourself for the sake of someone else. And, you know, for this old guy, he had a lot of justification, right? Like, oh, I'm old. You know, I'm, I still not, it's still a very significant response. I'm not saying it wasn't hard to do that. But he's older. He's been there. This young guy has a family. He's got life to live. Maybe he'll survive this. Maybe he'll get to see his kids again, right? And we can justify the rationality, even at this level, of, man, I, I really get why he did that, but I respect that. You know, that's, that's some deep love. But to be able to do that when you don't have to, to be able to do that when the people that you are saving might scoff and laugh and curse you, the people that have killed your friends, the people, like, to do that for that level, that is a deep kind of love that just keeps us up at night. And that is the love that God gives to you without any regard of what you'll do with it. And that's the love we see in 1 John 4. That type of love is just not possible on our own. That type of love is a spirit-led love that we get to receive, but we only get to receive because of the love that we first experience in light of that. And that's the story of Jesus coming to earth. Not just that he came in humble beginnings, but that he lived a very humble life, and that he died one of the most humble deaths possible, alone, outside of the city, unclean, scoffed at, unfair trial, right? Like, what kind of God would allow that, would let that happen? But that's the God who loves us so deeply, knowing the weight and the pain of sin in our lives, 
and shows us that. And so the, the, the passage goes on and it says, Dear friends, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. That's a big verse for us as a church. We love out of response of God's love. It says, No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God resides in us. We see God through people's love for others. It says he resides in us and his love is perfected in us. It means made mature, complete in us, that we have everything we need in this moment. By this we know that we reside in God and he is in us and he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's what we're doing today. We're testifying that we believe this to be true. Nobody would, nobody, no, no historian, even secular, would argue that Jesus wasn't born. It's really hard. It's a really spicy take. Uh, but they argue, did he do what he said he would do? Did he die? Did he actually resurrect? Did he actually do supernatural hearings? People can celebrate the birth of Jesus as a great moral teacher without having to follow the Bible in any capacity. But did this man, did he really save the world? Did he really do what ought to be done to save the world? Is he continuing to do that through his people, through the love that we experience some of you, unfortunately, have very rarely experienced the love of God through his people, and for that I am sorry. But some of you have, and some of you, that's why you're here today, because people have loved you deeply in a way that you just can't comprehend. It says, if anyone confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God resides in him and he in God. It sounds that simple. Is it that simple? Let's keep reading. And, and, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has in us. God is love, and the one who resides in love resides in God, and God resides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, and but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. We love because he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. And that's, the, that's just like the one-sentence gospel. That's the story of the Bible, is that God has loved his people for no reason, nothing we can do to earn it or to get it, except just believing in what he's done, believing in what Jesus has done. And that's the good news of the birth of Jesus, that God is doing something through Jesus. And even at his birth, I mean, just think about, everybody was, was, had misconceptions of what he would do. Everybody's like, man, can't wait till this guy grows up and he's 6'5 and 250 and can spear anyone around him, right? That's what they're thinking. Or he's like this just military savant who can like manipulate and he's crafty. And, you know, I mean, it's just, that's what they're all hoping out of this guy. And then he's like a normal average looking Middle Eastern dude who, mind you, you can't even find, a, I mean, I, so this week I tried to find a nativity scene with a Middle Eastern baby and you couldn't find it. It was impossible. But that's who, that's who our savior is. And he's this average normal man who comes and he shows you how to be human. He shows the prototypical way to be human. And he dies an incredibly just painful and humble death for you, for us, for the Jewish people, for the Gentiles. And all we have to do is just have ears to listen. That's what he says. Those who have ears to listen, listening, internalizing, and believing. And so here's, here's what I want to extend to you as I invite Nick up and we wrap up here. The good news is now and the good news is not yet. Maybe you've heard this phrase. The good news now is that we know the post story of the birth of Jesus, that Jesus did grow up sinless, that he lived a life that honored what it meant to be human, that he died a, that he died a death to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world and resurrected in power and has ascended to, to, to be with God the Father. Now, we know, if we know that, whether we believe it or not, if we know that, we have the opportunity for God to reside in us right now. The cool thing about this is this is your first time you believe that? You're like, ah, maybe. 
Or it's your 5,000th time you've been to Christmas Eve ever since you've been born, and maybe families drug you, or you just, you, just like to sell, you just like to follow the tradition and celebrate, right? We have the ability to remind ourselves of that today, regardless of where you're at, that Jesus was the Son of God, came as man, came through the most humble beginnings, that we have the ability to receive that. Now, does that mean, if I accept that today, that my life tomorrow is just amazing? Absolutely not. Not to be tragic, but people are dying today in the world. People are being tortured. There's wars going on today. In fact, Bethlehem, this city, is being attacked. People are being shot as of yesterday. The world is still full of evil. The good that we get now in our lives that we receive is a spiritual good for our lives, for our heart, for eternity. That does not mean that God is done with the world. And that's the hope that we have. And so the the now is that we have access to this relationship that frees us, that provides freedom and hope and peace, which all of us are trying to fight for in the midst of chaos. But the the not yet is that God is not done. And I, I love reading this. This is like one of the last chapters in the Bible in Revelation. This is what Jesus is doing in the second coming. It says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's this idea of this city set apart for God, a city on the hill, descending out of the heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. That bride analogy is the church. Those who believe in Jesus are Jesus' bride, to be married with him. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings. Sounds familiar. Sounds like John 1, when God became flesh and dwelt among humans and took residence among them. But... He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And what will he do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. So Christmas, Advent, the celebration of what Jesus has done is also being hopeful and excited for what is to come through the pain of our lives, through the mourning of our lives, that we can be uh, joyful and at peace and have hope in the midst of still wanting more and hoping for more and hoping that we know the world is not the way that God wants it. And if you don't believe that, that's fine. You have to figure out how you want to handle evil. But for those of us that do, for those of us that want to believe in that, that want to put our faith in that, I promise you it says when, when, um, when you believe and you have Jesus and you believe he's the son of God, that he will reside in you. I promise you God will not forget you. He will not leave you. He will not let you uh, squander. He, he, will, he will be present in your life. And so that's the truth that we hope and believe in today. And so as we give you time, we have four things we always do every Sunday to let you engage with teaching and just our engagement as a group of followers of Jesus. So the first thing we have is you can reflect on this. We just love to give you space and time before you're probably already eyeing up. Something's in the crock pot right now. You're already excited for the plans or whatever it is, right? Just taking a moment just to sit the process before we move on to our day. We also have people in the back who'd love to pray for you about anything and everything. Uh, if you've made a decision that you're like, I believe that or I have no idea. I'm just stuck in the tension or I feel conviction or I don't know what I feel. Or you're like, I, this is, I, I, every, every day I've been agreeing with this and I, I'm agreeing to this again and I just want to praise God for that. There's people in the back that would love to pray for you through that and celebrate with you. Uh, and then we also have two other things. We have a, we call it a bringing box in the back. That's where we place our uh, tithes, offerings, and giving to the Lord, to the local church. We Sometimes churches celebrate something specific on Christmas. They have an offering. We're not doing that. We're just doing a normal offering. We are in the process of buying or leasing and then buying a building, and so we've asked a lot out of you guys. And so uh, if you'd like to give tithes and offerings, you can in the back or online and bringing back a component of what is God's. And then lastly, we have the bread and cup, which to me is, it feels 
deeply symbolic in that on the same day we celebrate Jesus' birth, we also commemorate his death. Because his birth without his death, what is the point? And so we celebrate the bread and the cup as a symbol and a reminder that Jesus, this very small baby, grew up to one day be tortured and killed for us uh, on the cross. And so we take that for those who believe in Jesus as a symbol. And so we'll have a station in the front and the back. They're both gluten-free grape juice, and you can partake in that. And so we're going to give you some space to do any and all of these things. And then we're going to close with two more songs. And as we're reminded that Advent, that Jesus brings us, he brings us peace, he brings us hope, he brings us joy, and he brings us love. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.